Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that luxuriates in the realm of cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories with David Campbell, including Ferrari shares take a dive, Sanyong may be the first with an all-electric ute, and Audi is testing 5G production robots. We've been to the launch of the 12th generation Toyota Corolla. It's nearly all new, including offering hybrid as an option on all the variants. So we talked to Toyota Australia's Vice President, Sean Hanley, about how the image of hybrids have changed. Sean was the launch manager of the first Prius in Australia in 2001. And Brian Smith and I have a chat not so much with quirky news stories this time, but rather a reflection on the transport in the city of Perth. Have a question or a comment or want to look at past programs, interviews, videos or road tests, go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or listen to previous programs through your favourite podcast service. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. Mazda Australia has introduced a range-wide five-year unlimited kilometre warranty for all new vehicles. The news comes soon after Ford upped its standard warranty to five years earlier in May, and Holden followed suit later in July. Mazda's five-year unlimited kilometre assurance program is now in line with Honda, Hyundai and Skoda, but still falls behind Kia, which offers a seven-year unlimited kilometre coverage. However, American EV manufacturer Tesla still leads the market with its 8-year unlimited kilometre setup, which also comes with a separate 8-year 160-kilometre warranty for mechanical and electrical issues. Australian Formula One driver Daniel Ricciardo will quit Red Bull at the end of the season to join Renault on a two-year deal. Ricardo, who has driven with Red Bull since 2014, admits it will not be easy to walk away from the team with whom he has recorded seven victories. Ricardo's decision to leave is partly based on the fact that he is being paid significantly less than his younger teammate Max Verstappen. Ricardo earns roughly 40% less than Verstappen, an estimated $6 million compared to Verstappen's $10 million. Renault has not won a driver's championship since Fernando Alonso's double in 2005 and 2006, but is considered to be a team on a steady path to improvement since returning to the sport as a constructor in 2016. General Motors has asked the Trump administration to exclude its China-built Buick Envision SUV from import tariffs, saying they would harm the company's ability to compete in the US luxury sports utility vehicle market. GM sold 210,000 Envisions in China last year and just 42,000 in the United States. Not enough deliveries in its domestic market to support a US manufacturing plant. But the model is still needed to field a complete vehicle lineup. The Trump administration said in June that it planned to impose 25% duties on Chinese products, including motor vehicles, which could boost the price of an Envision by about $8,000. Carmakers across the world have separately urged Trump not to impose higher duties on imported cars. GM itself warned in June it might shrink US operations and cut jobs if bigger levies are actually implemented. 
Robots powered by 5G could be used to build cars of tomorrow even faster as Audi begins testing the technology in one of its production plants. The company has announced that it is working with Ericsson on a fully networked factory in Germany in a bid to keep up with high demand. Experts from both companies will begin tests in the coming months to see how the advantages of 5G could be used in factories. 5G is the next generation of mobile communications which uses ultra-low latency, meaning machines and systems will be able to respond to each other much faster than existing networks permit. The news comes after Audi recently revealed it is collaborating with Chinese smartphone giant Huawei on the development of technology for intelligent connected cars. Recently, Tesla announced that it was proposing to build the world's first all-electric ute, but they could be beaten to the market by South Korea's Sangyong Motors. The new battery-powered pickup was confirmed by Sangyong's managing director when the company outlined a range of new and updated models coming in the next five years. The groundbreaking new Sangyong EV ute, codenamed H100, is currently under development. With backing from its parent company Mahindra, Sangyong is planning to develop another electric vehicle on the EV platform, most likely a Mazda CX-5 size machine. It will arrive before the pickup and there's talk of a 2020 introduction in Australia. Shares in Ferrari recently fell after the new CEO, Louis Camilleri, told analysts that an annual revenue target set by the late former chief executive, Sergio Maccioni, was not 100% confirmed. Asked about Maccioni's target to reach 2 billion euros in revenue by 2022, which will be filled out in a detailed business plan presented next month, Camilleri said the goals had been reviewed by the board and were aspirational. The new business plan is expected to outline Ferrari's decision to start making SUVs. Camilleri told analysts that he and Maccioni shared ambitions for the company, but that the two had different management styles and that he would be focused entirely on Ferrari, while Maccioni was deeply engaged in two other companies. And that has been the news. The launch of the 12th generation Toyota Corolla in Australia highlights a number of significant changes, not just for this one vehicle model, but also for the market in general. With a whole new appearance, new powertrains and safety features, one of the important aspects of the new Corolla is that the hybrid option is now available on every variant of the range. Not only is hybrid only an additional option on the highest price, most luxury version of the car, it has now become a mainstream availability from the base model up. This is a significant evolution of the hybrid technology, as Sean Hanley, the Vice President for Toyota Australia of Sales and Marketing, noted when he reflected on the launch of the first Prius hybrid model onto our market some 17 years ago. I was the launch manager of the first generation Prius launch in Australia. We launched that back in October 2001. So it was a really significant time. You know, I always tell a story. I didn't realise the significance of the launch of that car myself, even though I was heading it up at the time, this, this hybrid technology. I didn't properly understand, I don't think, until many later years now, how significant that launch of that car was for Toyota at the time. Because it was never going to be a big volume seller. I mean, we launched it with a sales plan of five a month. Could you imagine that in Toyota at the time? Five a month. And uh, it, was, it was interesting but, you know, one of our great leaders at the time, John Konomos, he had a vision way back then. 
and he shared that vision with me. And um, it's interesting now, here we are some 17, 18 years later, math isn't that good, but anyhow, mm. whatever that is, uh, 17 years later. You know about selling five or not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 17 years later. <laughs> you know, I think back to the many conversations I had with our then Vice President, John Connors, and I realise now how significant not only his vision was at that time to bring that car to the Australian market, that Prius hybrid, but also the vision of our parent company, who'd actually been developing this a long time before we brought it to market. And here we are in the Australian market now facing imminent CO2 legislation across our car industry. And now I understand the significance and why we did that. The Prius has become synonymous with that environmental concern, with that sustainability, hasn't it? And it's really a strong brand image for Toyota and has been for a long time. Yeah, it has. And look, Prius, when we first brought Prius to market, it was all about the technology. It was about the early adopters, the intenders, the visionaries. So it took on a role as a technological leader for Toyota, albeit technology's moved you know to 20 fold since then but it was the start of the journey on hybrid we then launched it through Camry we've now launched it through Corolla again uh, but now we've broadened the Corolla hybrid range from one model to three we're going to launch RAV4 next year with the hybrid and we've got a couple more thereafter we're going to launch with hybrid so suddenly uh, and we've always got had Prius we had three versions of Prius I think as we sit here today so what we've seen is that Prius was the leader. I think Prius is significant for our Toyota brand still, as you said. It's synonymous with the, with the change of technology. So this whole idea that because we're expanding our hybrid range that we would just consider maybe consolidating or dropping the Prius brand is not a thought. We'll always keep the Prius brand because I think it will always signify Toyota as a leader in technology. It may play a different role, but the role I think it will play will be the role it played back in October 2001 in the future. Because you don't sell many here in Australia. No, no we don't. And, and, you know, it never was to be a big volume seller. And this is the point. It was all about the technology. It was all about trying to drive awareness of hybrid drive, Toyota hybrid drive technology. That's what Prius was all about. It was never about the volume in its isolation. In fact, when we launched it to do five a month, I can tell you we didn't make a red cent. <laughs> You know, yeah. and, and nor was it ever meant to. We accepted that this car would take, this technology would take time. To add a hybrid drive brand awareness, that investment's paid dividends twofold. And when imminent CO2 legislation, I think, is launched in our, or introduced into our country, which will happen, it will happen, I don't know when, but it will happen, then I think that investment, again, will be recognised as significant. It's deeper than volume, actually. I know people listening to this will maybe raise an eye a little too and think, oh, is it truly? Well, actually it is. It's bigger than volume. It's about our commitment to the global community. And that is, as a car company, we know we've got to reduce our CO2 footprint. It's as simple as that. And we know it beyond legislation. We know it because it's just the right thing to do. Sean, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. And that was Sean Hanley, the Vice President for Toyota Australia of Sales and Marketing, talking at the launch of the 12th generation Toyota Corolla. You're listening to Overdrive.
We drove the new Corolla from Brisbane to Noosa through the surrounding hinterlands. There are some lovely touring roads through that area. The first thing is that the body of the car is all new and it looks good. It's 40mm lower, 30mm wider and 45mm longer, but it doesn't look big. From the very first pictures I saw, it looks low to the ground, and it is. The centre of gravity is 10mm lower, which helps the handling, not only the looks. It is not like a bland, biggish car with a bit of bling. It is not over the top in the angles and creases of Toyota's small SUV, the CHR. It looks like it was designed with a clean sheet of paper, with style being the first priority. It would suit having a hot version that might come later. If you don't have a hybrid, there's a new 2-litre petrol engine with 21% more power, 125 kilowatts, and 15% more torque. It's redlined at 7,000 revs per minute, and if you take it that far, it does not sound wheezy or as if it is struggling. You can get a six-speed manual or an improved CVT gearbox. If you don't like CVTs, it will let you use it with 10-speed steps, which you can control with paddles on the steering wheel. The hybrid has the same 1.8 litre, which has only 72 kilowatts, and is redlined at a modest 5,500 RPM, but it has the electric motor to help. It comes with the CVT gearbox, but with no paddles. They've redesigned the rear suspension and improved the front suspension as well. It drives very well, holds onto the road with comfort and grip, doesn't turn into corners with the sharp aggressiveness of a sports car, which is quite appropriate, but if the corner tightens up, it hangs on well. They say it has a new system to apply brakes to either front wheel as necessary to reduce understeer. I asked the chief engineer of the car from Japan, I asked the chief engineer of the car from Japan, what extra benefit is this to the standard electronic stability control? He answered me politely and with a considerable amount of jargon, and I still don't fully understand. Its greatest limitation, despite its extra outward dimensions, is the very cramped room for the passengers in the rear, and the boot space is tiny. It really is a car for one or two people. The safety features are good, even in the base model, the Ascent Sport. As an aside, I think we are getting name inflation when the base model is called a Sport. But that's another issue. You do have to go to the middle spec SX to get blind spot monitoring and the top spec ZR to get head up display. Prices start at just under $23,000 for the Ascent Sport petrol manual and go all the way up to just under $32,000 for the top of the range ZR hybrid with a CVT. Those prices are recommended retail prices, and so you will have to add dealer delivery statutory charges and an extra $550 for metallic paint. So in summary, a very impressive car that raises the bar in quite a number of key areas. It's not the cheapest, and it is really a car that would suit one or two people, but it will sell well. You're listening to Overdrive. 
Well, not so much quirky news at the end of the program this week, but more some uh, reflections on uh, the recent conference held in Perth and from the point of view of what does it mean for you and me and what might we get out of it, not too academic, but rather as practical as possible. And who better to have to talk about that than a transport planner and expert, Brian Smith, who joins us on the line now. Brian, thanks for your time. G'day, David. We, uh, we're in Perth. I like Perth. Perth's a lovely city. It's not too big. I think that's part of it. The other thing I like about it is it's got some lovely old historic buildings which have huge towers around them in many cases, but they're not totally swamped by them. You know, in, in Sydney, you can get a, an old, wonderful old historic building crammed between two huge towers. Yeah, it's definitely got some pretty parts to it, David. Yeah, it's easy to get around, and uh, I enjoyed it immensely, including uh, the sort of I went up to the art gallery and and things. But the other thing is, of course, that they do have uh, five different free bus routes that circulate around there, and they seem quite popular. didn't work in Sydney. It uh, is working free trams in Melbourne. Is it a good idea? It's an interesting one, David. The uh, the cat buses are, are very popular in um, Perth, central area transit. You would have noticed the buses, the normal sort of urban buses, don't penetrate the CBD. They stop at bus stations on the outskirts. And so you can't actually catch a bus through the city centre. And the, the idea of these cat buses, which are actually funded by the Chamber of Commerce for the city, they support people who come in on bus or train potentially also by car, and then can ride around on these uh, these free buses. So um, it's really about trying to encourage retail activity in the city centre. They are popular. They're one-way loops, so they, they're a little inconvenient depending on how you want to travel. But they're frequent, they're small and clean, and, yeah, lots of people like to use them, and they're free. I had a few hours to go before I got on the plane, and I did a loop in one and, you know, got off halfway, and, it, yes, it was. It was remarkably easy. That's You're right about those depots, isn't it? That, uh, and, by the way, the one I was near the conference centre, which is down near the water, which mm. is down near that glorious bridge that has, like, two Sydney harbour bridges, only in small, but <laughs> pedestrians across... Uh, but there was a big terminal there next door to the train one as well. But the bus, it wasn't a bus bus stop. It wasn't, it, it was the things you've talked about, isn't it? That it's, it's a, not huge, but at least a bit of a dynamic area that looked like a transport interchange, not just a bus stop. Mm, the fully enclosed one. Did you visit the other one, David, the underground bus station at the northern part of the city? I briefly saw a little of it, but I didn't go into it in great detail. Mm, one of my projects, I spent a bit of time in oh. Perth doing the concept design for that uh, that very project. I should have gone in there and said, I know Brian Smith. <laughs> <laughs> Getting the streets safe, there's a lot of work being done in Perth, and rather good. No, one of the keynote speakers was Paul Steely-White. He's the Executive Director of Transportation Alternatives in New York. Fundamentally, it's a community-based lobby group, I suppose, not in the negative sense, I don't think, of trying to get rid of the dominance of cars in that city. I asked him, and he would have heard in the interview in the program, how he managed to get, finally, a one-on-one interview with a senator who from the Republican Party who had ignored him and so on. I said, how did you get that interview? And he said, I got arrested. <laughs> it's, a, it's an effective way. Well, and he wasn't saying it's all the way. You know how you can get that American thing where you've got to stand up, shout, and 
be abusive and what have you. He wasn't. He was just standing in the street blocking the footpath, I think, with a number of people, parents who'd lost children who'd been killed on the road, trying to make the point. I actually asked him in one of the sessions what was his strategy then when he got to meet the senator, who could be pretty you know, old-fashioned and pig-headed, I guess, in a way. And he said, well, he, he ummed and out a bit, but it was, you know, there are times to be strong and there are times to be collaborative. Mm. And that came out as a, a, a major... But I, I had a ride on the autonomous bus... Oh, yes, they've been trialling that down around the waterfront, haven't they? Mm. Actually, it's the car club that's doing it. I think the RAC over there are rather enlightened, really. Yeah, and what did you think of it, David? Did it perform appropriately uh, when you used it? It's a very short little loop around the park area. Part of it ran beside some units and buildings there, so there were cars parking occasionally and so on. Let's describe it. It's a it's a six seater pod. It goes around, and it has someone in there to take over controls in case it doesn't work as properly as it is. It's got a whole pile of technology, including backup technology to it. But the principle that they're doing it for is not to prove the technology, but to give people a chance to see what it's like. Hmm. And the guy who was showing us around talked of an older couple who took 18 months to build up the courage to use it. It only goes at 11 kilometres an hour or something. I mean, it's not, it's not as if it's rushing. But it took them 11, 18 months to build up the courage to use it. Then they used it and they thought it was fine. I think that's the point, though, Brian, that we need people to come to grips with this, not as, oh, we've got a brand new technology, use it or, you know, or go away. It's a chance to try and bring people on over a period of time. Yes, yes, it's, a, it's an interesting little thing. There's no driving wheel, is there? The, no. the person who's the backup driver has a, a computer game controller. Hmm. And if, the, as happens, the, the um, vehicle detects an obstacle, it generally won't solve that problem without human input. It's an interesting test. We've, we've discussed before how, um, in terms of the autonomous vehicle technology, Buses are probably one of the best uses for it and one of the, the uh, modes in which you could probably introduce autonomous vehicles fairly early. They run on a fixed route, they have fixed stopping points, they have professional drivers. It's possible to, to separate the buses from other vehicles. And so it's, re it's a reasonable way to introduce um, an autonomous vehicle and particularly where you might mix with non-autonomous vehicles. So the point here being that that uh, if you have trained drivers, it's probably easier to train them to accept a, an autonomous vehicle within their fleet and, and on the road uh, compared with just, um, you know, free-for-all on the streets with, with autonomous cars. And the other aspect of, of buses, of course, is that the cost of the driver is a substantial part, 50% or more, of the total cost of operating a bus. So if you can remove the driver then potentially you can provide more service for the same sort of cost or potentially provide much cheaper or even free public transport. The shuttle trial is free, isn't it, Dave? Absolutely. And you get a little certificate and it's being run and funded by the motoring club who doesn't, as I say, trying to do it as a marketing exercise for something that they might get into, although they might, I don't know but they're really doing it for this first and foremost purpose of just letting people have a chance to get rid of it, to get used to it. Now, Brian, I think what you just said then raises the point is one of the people that really got it very quickly, of course, were kids, 
children. Ah, yes. Yep. But they also understood its limitations. A uh, young kid, seven-year-old or eight years old, so they tell us, was in at one time, and she turned around and said, this whole system won't work. I said, why? Well, if you get to a point, as you said, Brian, it stops without knowing what to do. And so quite often, when we went round two or three times, the controller had to take over. Now, here's the point, and I think it came out in the conference. How do you answer that kid? There's two ways of answering them. Saying, oh, that's nice, thanks very much. Three ways. The other way is to say, no, 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 we'll solve it and that. But the real way, and this is how I think we've got to get interaction going, is to ask them, yes, that's a good point, or you know, talk to them about, that's a good point, what do you think we might do to try and get around it? Mm. Involve them in the solution, mm. and they're more likely to, to trust it. It's a fascinating topic for sure that uh, I'd love to get a chance to ride that bus. Mm. The, the thing about this, there was a car park utility, you know, workman, and it was just had its tail out just a little bit, you know, just pretty well on the lane marking. Well, look, the bus stopped and needed to have control around there. If a bird or a leaf flew in front of the car, the bus, the autonomous bus, it could go into a panic stop. Now, from 11 kilometres an hour, that's not an issue, but it just says... This is the level of safety they're going to at the moment, but we're going to have to try and address. Brian, everything you described then really pushes towards one point, local trips. Mm. It came out in the conference, the real opportunity we have to get more people into active transport and, and using buses and public transport is local trips. Yes. If you thought of the local area, a lot of people make local trips. In Sydney, 50% of trips are 5Ks or under. 25% are 2Ks or under. So the whole notion that you'll solve everything by long distance and you know huge capacity on perhaps trains or what have you is not the whole story. Indeed. And, and so the New South Wales government has been trialling on-demand bus services. These are, are not driverless, but when they could be, the idea being here that you, you sort of book this, the trip on your mobile phone and it can take you around where fixed public transport services might be hard to deliver. A high proportion of those trips are trips being made to the train station or to a bus station and quite often by older people. So um, that idea of more flexible transport solutions is a good one, even with the lower cost model of an autonomous vehicle, though I'm not 100% sure it's sustainable. Brian, lovely to talk to you. I, I, I appreciate the uh, reflection on these things. I think it's important that really we take it from not what might appear to be just academic or high-browed or aspirational down to what does it look like when it's working. Thanks for your time. You're welcome, David. It's always a pleasure. That's Brian Smith, a transport planner and expert, particularly in public transport issues, but uh, across the board and understanding as well talking about a conference, the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Conference in Perth that has just occurred, and we were talking about it here on Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith, David Campbell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. 
You can get heaps of information from past programs to interviews and videos on our website at drivenmedia.com.au. And the program is podcast through iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.